Welcome to Unlearn to Learn, a podcast brought to you by the World Obesity Federation. I'm your host, Alexander. I'm the Education Manager at World Obesity, and in my role as Manager of Scope eLearning, I oversee the development of resources to improve the care and treatment of patients with obesity. In this series, I'll be speaking with some of the most experienced medical practitioners from all over the world. Across nine episodes, we'll be examining the prevention, treatment and care of obesity by busting myths and focusing on the science behind obesity treatment and management. Whether you're a medical student, a practitioner, or simply have an interest in obesity and public health, there's something to be learned here. So join us. Let's get started. In this episode, we'll be looking at COVID-19 and its impact on patients living with obesity. We'll be looking at our current understanding of the pathophysiology of COVID, its relationship with obesity, and the complexities of the two diseases. We'll be delving into the science behind this connection. Obesity rates have increased over the past two years, during which many countries implemented lockdown measures in response to the pandemic. Was this primarily due to a reduction in physical activity, or can it be attributed to the impact on people's mental health? We'll find out. We'll also discuss the challenges of long COVID in relation to obesity, before talking about vaccines and providing counsel to any fears or concerns regarding COVID-19. There's so much to unpack, so let's get right into it. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Donna Ryan. Dr. Ryan is the Professor Emeritus at Pennington Biomedical Research Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Over her extensive career, Dr. Ryan has been active in the clinical research of obesity and a key advocate in the spread of information regarding the disease. Her own research has included participation on the teams that developed and executed, among others, the DASH, Pounds Lost, DPP, and Look Ahead studies. Her continued research interests focus on the translation of effective weight management and medical education efforts to primary care practices and physicians. Dr. Ryan, welcome. Thank you, Alexander. I'm delighted to be here. We're delighted to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you please start by summing up the medical community's current understanding of the pathophysiology surrounding COVID-19? And how has our understanding of the disease developed since the start of the pandemic around two years ago? Well, let's get our terminology straight. First off, COVID-19 is the name of the disease, and that stands for Coronavirus Disease 2019, the year we identified it. But it's actually caused by a virus, and the name of the virus is SARS Coronavirus 2. That stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and it's the second one of these viruses that we've really had on a pandemic level. So the very first case of COVID-19 was identified in December 2019 in China. Well, since then, it's been quite a pandemic. I checked the numbers today. Thus far, we have more than 482 million cases documented in the world and more than 6.1 million deaths in the world. We've also given almost 11 billion vaccine doses. That's pretty good for a world population of 7.9 billion. So let's go back now to what we know about COVID-19. So the, the scientific evidence was that this coronavirus started in animals, probably bats or pangolins, and it jumped to humans who are now spreading it among themselves by human to human contact in the community or in our healthcare settings. But you know, there's also evidence that we're spreading it to our pets and other animals that we're coming into contact with. You know, the the name Corona 
refers to a crown. And if you look at the virus in two dimensions, it looks like a crown. It's got these proteins that are sticking out called spike proteins or S proteins. These spike proteins are critical uh, to the virus's ability to gain entry into our cells. The spike proteins bind to ACE2 receptors on cells to get inside us. We have abundant ACE2 receptors on our respiratory epithelium, also our olfactory epithelium, also along the GI tract and many organs. So the usual way that the virus gets in is through the respiratory epithelium, but it can also get in uh, through the gut. But once inside cells, our own cell machinery takes over and it makes hundreds of replications of the virus that then are released by the cell and spread throughout the body. So the COVID-19 disease itself is really a spectrum of diseases and we've seen different variants emerge that have slightly different symptoms and and presentations. Also, vaccination has changed the presentation of the virus. But in its early form, we found that the, many people could be asymptomatic and still shed virus. But the average time from being exposed to the virus and developing symptoms is short. It's only about five days. Early on, we experienced fever, cough, loss of taste and smell, shortness of breath, and about 80% of our known virus-positive cases are really relatively mild. About 20% require hospitalization in unvaccinated individuals. ICU admission is required anywhere from 5 to 17% of cases. The chief cause of death is usually pulmonary failure, but heart failure, heart attack, kidney failure, thrombotic complications like stroke, and multi-organ failure are additional causes of death. The mortality rate varies about 1% in young adults to, for those 85 and older, about 30%. But since the advent of those vaccines, we're seeing much less severe disease among vaccinated individuals. So one of the things that uh, has our, improved our treatment of COVID is to understand that there are actually different stages of this disease. Early on, stage one of the disease is, is when our innate immunity needs to take over and try to prevent viral entry. And this is when our vaccines and our antiviral therapy are most effective. But then, after the virus has become established, in stage two, we really begin to see lung involvement worsen. And this is, is where we see the breakdown of the epithelial interface. And so if we do a CT at this stage, we'll usually see what we call ground glass opacities in the lungs. This is where the lung air sacs, the alveoli, have been filled with fluid. And it looks like ground glass. You know, if you take a piece of glass and rub it with an abrasive, you'll get opacities. And so that ground glass opacities is what it looks like on those CT scans. This is when we need oxygen, ventilators, good supportive care, and it's when our immunotherapies really seem to help. Stage three is really where obesity and other complications tend to cause the, the most health problems. And it's, it's really caused by an imbalance in the immune reaction to the SARS coronavirus 2. 
the body produces what's called a cytokine storm. In this period, there's an enormous prothrombotic, pro-inflammatory uh, response to the virus itself. And during this phase, we need to treat patients with immunosuppressants, antithrombotic medications, good supportive care and supportive organs that are failing. So we really understand this disease as a spectrum and we apply our therapies depending upon the stage or the phase of the disease. Well, thank you for that overview. That's really helpful. And that leads nicely onto my next question, which is how do COVID and obesity interact with each other? And what are the underlying biologic mechanisms that associate the two diseases? You know, when we first were told about this COVID-19 pandemic that was coming, we were worried that obesity would increase risk for severe disease with COVID-19, and we turned out to be right. So early on, there were epidemiologic studies, and now we have many, many that show an association with BMI, the body mass index, and risk for COVID complications. So when we define obesity by BMI, we're really defining it by body size. And BMI is a very good measure. It's easy to obtain. It's all you need is a height and a weight. And we know that on a population basis, this corresponds very well to the amount of body fat that is occurring in that population. But on an individual basis, it's not always quite accurate. But our studies of BMI and risk for COVID show that it did predict risk for these adverse outcomes of COVID-19. Later, studies have shown that if we actually measure the excess abnormal body fat with CT scans of the abdomen, this is a much better measure of predicting bad outcomes, adverse outcomes of COVID-19. So what's driving it, Alexander, what's driving that association is not just body size, it's the excess abnormal body fat that's making individuals more susceptible to the adverse outcomes of COVID-19. You know, this visceral adiposity or excess abnormal body fat is unhealthy. If you look at it under the microscope, it does not look the same as healthy fat cells taken from under the skin on our hips and thighs. It's got inflammation, fibrosis, dead and dying fat cells, and it's producing a lot of unhealthy cytokines. That abnormal excess body fat is pro-inflammatory, pro-thrombotic, and it promotes endothelial inflammation. So people with obesity are known to have immune dysfunction, and so we know they're at increased risk for being infected with the SARS coronavirus too, but they also have this pro-inflammatory, pro-thrombotic environment that makes them much more risk for complications during that stage two and stage three of the disease. People with obesity also have altered lung functions and complications like diabetes, heart disease, kidney disease, liver disease, and that can make people at greater risk for complications of severe adverse outcomes of COVID-19. The last thing I want to talk about in explaining this association is obesity stigma. Individuals with obesity often delay seeking medical care, and many have had unpleasant experiences in medical settings. This makes them reluctant to seek care early on in our hospitals and our clinics. We really need to fight this. 
Obesity is a stigmatized disease, and there's no reason for stigmatizing any disease. Our patients need to seek care for this early on. Right, so there's really a trio of risk factors there. There's the risk for infection being higher for people with obesity, the risk of complications are higher in people with obesity, and the risk of not seeking medical help at the appropriate time as a result of stigma for people with obesity. How about the risk of mortality? Is that higher? Yes, it is. In fact, individuals with obesity are more likely to require hospitalization, to require oxygen once they're hospitalized, to end up in the intensive care unit, to require invasive mechanical ventilation, and they are at higher risk for death from COVID-19. You know, Alexander, one of the other risk factors that's very important in COVID-19 is age. So we know older individuals have much poorer outcomes than younger individuals. But even at any age, obesity increases risk. And the higher the BMI, the higher the risk for all of those adverse outcomes I just talked about. So at any age, a higher BMI causes increased risk for those bad outcomes. So we have this situation where we know that obesity is a risk factor for infection, for severe outcomes from COVID-19. But we also have a situation where obesity rates have actually increased significantly over the last couple of years. To what extent do you attribute that to some of the restrictions and measures that were rightly put in place to try to counter the effects of the pandemic? Well, first of all, I think we need to understand that it's a mixed picture. Some patients actually lost weight and got healthier. They took the COVID-19 lockdown as an opportunity to really focus on health and well-being. But on a population basis, you are absolutely right. Uh, The population average demonstrates that there has been an increase in weight and obesity rates. We're particularly concerned about children, and only now we're seeing emerging evidence that for our children, there have been dramatic increases in risk for developing obesity. And I think that's because of, of the lockdown and the lack of having kids, in many cases, in schools with exposure to uh, healthy meals that are provided by the schools and physical activity that's also available more often in a school setting. So the other aspect of this problem, Alexander, is that this increase in obesity rates appears to be more prominent in minorities and individuals who have health disparities, who have low education level and are of low socioeconomic status. So I think the causes of this are and contributors to this issue are lack of physical activity during lockdown, stress, emotional eating, economic hardship. Many people lost jobs during the pandemic. Food insecurity is associated with obesity in adults. So it's a very multifaceted issue then. So mental health is a major contributor as well, do you believe? Absolutely. So what input do the government, health professionals and the media have in creating the kind of obesogenic environments that can cause people to develop obesity and therefore be at greater risk of COVID? And in particular, what role do they play in adverse times like this pandemic? Well, across the globe, some governments did allow for one hour of outside physical activity a day. That's what Australia did. They really managed to keep their COVID rates down. But for the most part, physical activity was not encouraged in our lockdowns. I wish our governments, health professionals, and the media had anticipated the adverse effects of worsening the obesogenic environment 
because now we've got to play catch up. One thing about the COVID experience, it really revealed how serious obesity is and that it's a disease and we need to get serious about it. If obesity was such an important predictor of bad outcomes of COVID, it means it's a serious disease and we need to be doing everything we can to lessen that environmental pressure that results in weight gain. Do you think that one small positive we can take from this experience is an increased recognition of obesity as a disease? Alexander, thank you for saying that. Absolutely, that is one positive outcome of the COVID epidemic is that it's really brought home that obesity is a disease and it's not just a lack of willpower. It's, and it can be, the problem can be solved by just eating a little less and exercising a little more. Another positive outcome of this epidemic, I believe, is that it really showed how science can work to our benefit. You know, one thing that I saw during this epidemic was that there was much more uh, rapidly reporting of results. So clinical trials got fast-tracked. There was reporting of these results faster. Open access became a lot more available. Our results were much more available to scientists. And a look at the vaccines. These are truly scientific miracles. We got these vaccines out and into people in less than a year, and they are remarkably effective. To me, what this says is that there's a great validation of science. And honestly, it's heartbreaking to me to see people repudiate science, believe in conspiracy theories, and not want to accept vaccination or the other known and proven treatments for obesity. I think one thing that the, this epidemic did is it revealed to us our problems. It reveals our problems with the obesogenic environment. It reveals our problems with people not taking an enlightened view about science and being skeptical and believing things that have no basis in fact. You know, so I think it's the epidemic really shows us where our flaws are and where we really need to work. Well, that's a good point. And on the subject of vaccines, are the vaccines as safe and as effective in people with obesity compared to people with a healthy weight? Well, you know, we were worried about this also because we've known that the flu vaccines are not as efficacious in individuals with obesity as they are with those without obesity. But for all of our vaccines that were developed, when they published the results, they published along with them sub-studies that compared vaccine efficacy and safety in individuals with obesity, even severe obesity, and compared it to individuals without obesity taking the same vaccine. And they all showed these remarkable effectiveness of the vaccines in preventing a severe disease. So the message to our patients with obesity is the vaccines work. We need to be taking them and we need to be advocates for vaccination. That's really reassuring to know. That's great. And what message would you have for anyone who is maybe hesitant about getting vaccinated? The evidence is out there. These vaccines are safe and efficacious. The evidence is also out there that individuals who are not vaccinated have much more severe experiences when they develop COVID-19. This disease has not gone away. We've been successful in changing its manifestations, primarily through vaccination. But if you're not vaccinated, 
you might as well be back in early 2020 when the virus was shown to be such a severe health threat and associated with so many adverse health outcomes. Get your vaccination. I'd also like to discuss the phenomenon of long COVID. Can you tell us about the effects that long COVID can have on the body? And in particular, what are its implications on people living with chronic diseases like obesity? Yes, this is such a hot area for research. So we're only now learning about long COVID. The scientific name for this long COVID is post-acute sequelae of SARS coronavirus 2, or PASC, post-acute sequelae of coronavirus. So PASC, or long COVID, is defined as symptoms that last longer than four weeks. And up to 20% of individuals have been reported to experience this. We do not fully understand long COVID. And some people have experienced extended bouts of symptoms many months and very unusual symptoms, fatigue, mental fogginess, muscle and joint pain, extended loss of taste and smell, and other sensory defects, and other organ dysfunctions. You know, long COVID is probably a collection of things as causes of these symptoms. It's probably just not one thing that is driving long COVID. Recently, a very influential paper showed that after COVID infection, there was latent viral activation. So individuals who had Epstein-Barr virus or cytomegalovirus or varicella zoster virus infections earlier reactivated these latent viruses. And that may be causing some of this long COVID and its various symptoms. But some patients may have also developed autoantibodies, so antibodies to their own tissue, and that could be causing these symptoms. Some patients may have small fiber neuropathy. That's been described in some of these long COVID cases. And microscopic blood clots causing organ damage that might be producing these residual symptoms. I think that it's even possible that some patients have residual SARS coronavirus 2 activity in their bodies. And we worry that fat tissue, especially abundant amounts of fat tissue, might be a source of a viral reservoir because, you know, fat tissue has those ACE2 receptors on its surface and fat tissue has been shown to be infected by the SARS coronavirus too. So you're asking me this question too early, Alexander. It's going to take lots of of research and there's a lot of investment in research in long COVID. We're going to figure out what PASC, post-acute sequelae of, of the coronavirus, is, and ask me this question in a year. Right. I'll, um, I may take you up on that, but uh, that's a very good point, and I think it again goes back to just showing the importance of scientific research and of continuing to follow the science, continuing to follow the data. So I suppose finally then, for anyone with obesity who is worried about long COVID or worried about COVID-19 generally, what kind of specialist support exists for them, and what personal advice would you impart? You know, Alexander, whenever I'm asked for advice about health care from people with obesity, I always give the same answer, and that is find a doctor who knows something about obesity and don't neglect your care. It's not always easy to find a doctor who knows something about obesity. Obesity has not been considered a disease and hasn't been taught in our medical education, but that's changing. 
There are now certification of obesity medicine specialists in the United States. We have a SCOPE certification program for healthcare providers, and that's sponsored by World Obesity Federation. That World Obesity Federation is also developing a certification examination for physicians. And you can usually go onto the internet in your area to find physicians and nurse practitioners and others who have expertise in obesity care. It's so important that you find the right health care provider and that you don't neglect your care. For everybody, get vaccinated. Become an advocate for vaccination. And again, not just for people with obesity, but for everybody. Remember, there are four pillars of health. Sleep, movement, nutrition, and well-being. Well-being covers the mental aspects of good mental health. So remember the four pillars of health. Excellent advice, and I think that's an excellent note to end on. We will make sure to add links to the educational resources you mentioned in the show notes. But for now, Dr. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of your knowledge and expertise. It's been invaluable information and your personal insight is very much appreciated. So thank you so much. And thank you to all of our listeners as well for tuning in. I've been Alexander. I'm the Education Manager at the World Obesity Federation. And this has been the Unlearn to Learn podcast. On the next episode, we'll be joined by Dr. Louise Bauer from the University of Sydney. And she's going to help us explore the topic of childhood obesity and its effects and implications on the individual. We'll see you then. Goodbye.